All right. That's a lot. We were trying to get situated. I was asking her what side she wanted or preferred. It matters. <laughs> All right. You know what? I'm just going to close this. All right. Good morning, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. All right, I'll assume it for you. Um, let me just say, because you're at a marriage event doesn't mean that something is wrong. <laughs> right? I remember prior to getting married, they encouraged premarital counseling. Um, and the Christian counselor that we went and sat with, because uh, we didn't want to do it with her dad, who is, uh, has been a pastor for 40-something years now, um, and we didn't want to sit with him and talk through all of our uh, premarital discourse. Um, so we went with someone else. And I remember our first session, she said, nothing is wrong because you're here. Um, and oftentimes we have that idea. We feel like the only time where we need to seek help, where we need to seek counsel, where we need to look for a influence or a relational influence or the attempt to bring discipleship to our life is when something is wrong. Um, this is not in case of emergency break glass, although there are times for that, for sure. There are times for that. Um, but I think equally what we also have to understand is that just because nothing is wrong doesn't also always mean that everything is right. The two are not the same, right? Nothing can be wrong, but there can be very little about what's right also, right? We're not looking just for the elimination of issues, uh, trying to preserve what is um, the peace, so to speak, right? We're not peacekeepers, we're peacemakers. There's a difference. People who keep the peace tend to accommodate for everyone else's agenda trying not to stir up strife, conflict, issues. Uh, peacemakers are those who know the truth and are willing to, even at the loss of their own lives, lay it down with conviction in the middle of what could be a storm based off of the hostility over the things that are true. Um, we're called to be peacemakers, right, in Matthew 5. Um, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, um, Jesus laid down his own life willfully, joyfully, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, so in the idea of marriage, um, we want things to be right. right? We at least want to be trying. We want our lives to be aligned. Uh, let, me, let me ask this. How many, how many singles do we have in the room this morning? Yes. Uh, well, we'll start here. I think the church... In large part, I'm not speaking about any particular church. I'm just going to use the church as a vague term, right, as a general term. Uh, I have no one in mind. I see no faces, no logos. All right, it, it's important to speak with purity of heart, especially if you're going to generalize statements. Uh, oftentimes, we subliminally uh, make statements, right, We're, when we're trying to say something to someone. Uh, and then we use opportunities like this to do so, which is wrong, by the way. Um, but I think the church has done a terrible job 
at speaking into the situation of being single. Um, I think oftentimes we devalue people that are single, uh, right? Paul was single, right? To our knowledge, Paul was not married. So the first, or the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 7, right, who says, I wish that everybody was like me, that you had the gift of God as I do, a celibate life, single eye, pure devotion to Christ for all of my life. I wish that everyone would share in this gift and this way of life. That same guy is also the guy who wrote Ephesians 5, which is one of the greatest mysteries is marriage, Christ and the church, the son of man and his radiant bride. So the same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 7 is the same guy that God used to write Ephesians 5. So it's not that one is better than the other. It's not that one is worse than the other. Um, It's all about, as Paul would have called it, his choice in life for a singular or a pure devotion to the Lord. He said, I wish everybody would give their lives this way. Um, And so I think the church in some parts hasn't really done a great job in handling the idea of being single. Um, right, we, we almost act as if it's some sort of deformity, right, that people are still single for whatever reason, um, when in fact that's not the case. Uh, there are people who in a beautiful way have chosen this way of life, right, not necessarily like Daniel in order to become a part of the king's close proximity and his company who was made to be a eunuch, Right? It was one of the ways that the king would count trustworthy men because he didn't have to worry about you with all of his wives. It's how he would allow you closer or more intimate proximity and to be responsible in things that pertain to him. So we're not talking about a Daniel type <laughs> singleness right? made to be a eunuch. We're talking about a Pauline, right? like the choice of a celibate life, pure singular devotion to Christ. Um, but if that's not the case... And you're like, whoa, 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 bro, that's not me at all. Like, I'm not praying about celibacy for the rest of my life. Like, I get that. Praise God for those guys, you know, for whatever company fits into that. I've got a different desire. Um, I hope that the things that are shared, you know, will kind of fit on a larger scale in both conversations. Right? Because what I don't want to do is individualize the conversation to where it's only applicable. uh, Because that's not necessarily our journey. Uh, We've got coming up on 17 years. So I'm sure there may be people that have been married longer than us, maybe not as long as us. Um, It's not necessarily that time in the game is the only thing that matters, um, right? Even as it is with spirituality and years that you've been born again. Simply just acquiring a certain amount of time doesn't necessarily mean that you've gained a certain maturity, right? Stature is a spirit thing. It's not just a consequence of time, right? Stature is according to surrender. It's according to yieldedness. Um, We grow by the speed and the strength of our yes to God. It's universal. It's in our individual life. And then it's also, again, definitely applicable in the place of marriage. Um, But we've got, coming up on 17 years, uh, we have a six-year difference. Uh, which one of us do you think is older? I've had five children. <laughs> uh, we've got five kids uh, that range in age from 13 to 2. Oh, 
So two girls, three boys, actually three girls and three boys. Um, we lost a little girl in between our two little guys. Um, so 2020, we lost a little girl, um, little Ava Janae. We will see her again in the age to come. So we've had girl boy, girl boy, girl boy um, in the way that it's kind of shuffled through in the children that we've had. Um, so almost 17 years, three cities, um, three different church works that we've been planted in, anchored in together, um, five kids, all kinds of moves, been all over the world preaching the gospel, uh, and are still together and madly in love by the grace of God. Um, which is not always the case. Which is not always the case. Um, I think, just in an introductory way, um, I was 25 when we got married, and Anna was 19. I had had almost a decade and a half of broke, well, I don't want to say that, a decade, because when I got born again, things changed. So I had had almost a decade of brokenness, living in the world, um, self-satisfying in the place of relationships, in all of the worst and wrong possible ways. Um, I now got born again. I was on fire for the Lord um, in my immaturity and zeal. Man, my heart just burned for Jesus. Um, what the Lord was doing in my life was authentic. It was powerful. Um, it was authentic. I was desiring to learn and to grow in God. Um, and to live a life that pleased him, right? This is what we would call discipleship. Uh, one of the ways that we can define discipleship is learning how to satisfy our appetites the way that God says is right. Um, life is about appetites. Uh, we'll talk about that, especially in the place of marriage. Um, life is about appetites. And I had spent a long time satisfying a variety of appetites in all of the wrong way. Our story is radically different. Um, I'll share my part, and it can share hers. Um, but from the age of 11, 12 years old, um, introduced to drugs and alcohol, sexual lifestyle. Um, I've got an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old at home. I could not possibly imagine um, the introduction of drugs and alcohol, and especially uh, experimenting in a sexual lifestyle. Um, but from the age of 11 or 12, now fast forward that to 21, when I showed up on Pastor Appreciation Day to fight the pastor's son, and five years later, end up marrying the pastor's daughter. <laughs> right? Now, obviously, there's a whole bunch of other details. <laughs> whole bunch of other details. Um, God absolutely has a sense of humor. Um, but for the decade that I was living for the world in a very aggressive way, it was anything and everything, free for all, uh, incredibly broken and wild way of life. Um, drug addicted for a decade, drug dealing in and out of jail, party lifestyle, gang lifestyle, um, just you name it. Uh, mix that in with a very broken life, darkness that abounded, um, suicidal, and the whole buffet of what is um, the experience of the world when you are living seduced 
by your own satisfactions and then the incentivizing of all of what the world has to try and satisfy you. Um, so after a decade of that, I get born again. And now my heart is on fire for Jesus, and I'm trying to bring discipleship to my life. At times things are going well, at times they are not, right? It's a journey. We are being sanctified. Um, wanting to get off of the roller coaster road or road or ride of Christianity, right? In a real way, I'm trying to incorporate people in my life that can help me bring real discipleship. Um, I didn't want to jump into another relationship because I had done it the wrong way for so long and I had never had a positive example of what the right way looked like. I had never had a come watch me, come follow me. I had never had a model or someone that was living in the experience that I desired to have for my own life, for my own family, if one day the Lord would decide to do that for me. Um, it's really important, right? You want to find people who are farther down the road, who are actually modeling what you would desire for your own life, where you would say, man, if 10 years from now we were living in what they're living in, man, like praise God, right? Like if 15 years from now, 20 years from now, we could be growing into the experience of what these folks have been able to accomplish over time in God, in the place of marriage and family, like man, that would be amazing. Um, we have this in our own lives. Right? You never graduate from the place of discipleship. You never graduate from uh, the need to continue to increase or to grow up in God according to his purposes. And so we have people like this, couples like this, that continue to speak into our life, um, that continue to journey with us, that are farther down the road, and they're just an incredible blessing. Uh, but so I had done it the wrong way and seen it done the wrong way for a long time. Um, I come from a broken home. Um, my house was filled with drug addiction and adultery and violence. And because we lived disconnected from everyone else, uh, what I mean by that is we didn't go to church. I didn't grow up in the knowledge of God. I didn't grow up being trained uh, according to the ways of God or righteous living. There were no church services, kids' church, youth group. There was nothing like that. Um, in fact, it was very separate from that. I would consider it to be a godless environment um, again, filled with drama and violence and addiction and adultery. Um, and so I had it modeled wrong for me. I can't remember one time my entire life where we had another family over or got together with another family for a meal or, or anything of this nature. So more inclusive, more boxed in, uh, isolated from others. And so I didn't realize that what was going on in my house was actually abnormal. Right? It's like, man, there was all types of hostility and hysteria in my home being modeled in front of me. Uh, and let me just say this. That those of us that have families and those of us that have children, your children right now are learning a foundation for interaction with the world and others based off of what is the culture or the experience of your home. They're learning um, uh, language that's appropriate. They're learning physical interaction that's appropriate. They're learning sacrifice. They're learning love and concern and compassion. They're learning all types of things that right now are laying a foundation or creating a particular culture in them. And so being isolated 
and just having this miserable experience that I didn't know everyone else wasn't going through, right? Because then you show up and you just show face. And because no one else is talking about it, you assume that everyone else is going through what you're going through, right? And it's like we didn't talk about what was going on at home. We just did life and interacted with others as if everything was peachy keen, right? Or as if everything was amazing because that's just what you do. You don't act like anything is wrong. You don't let people in that there's real issues or that there is abnormalities that are being cultivated or experienced in the home environment. And so not having any right way. I remember one day sitting with the Lord um, and Anna and I had become friends and there was an interest there and wanting to be very careful in the way that I approached interacting with her. I remember fasting and praying one time and saying, Lord, I'm not lonely. Um, Because this is important, right? Two broken things don't make a whole thing. Right? Like two broken things, you don't put two broken things together to make a complete or to make a whole. It just creates a bigger broken mess. Right? It just creates a bigger pile of brokenness and broken things. So I wasn't lonely, right? There's a difference between being alone and being lonely. There's a difference. Um, And I wasn't just in love with the idea of being in love. Right? Some are in love with the idea of being in love. And it's not even necessarily dependent upon the person that they claim to be in love with. It's the idea of being in love and it's the experience that they're enamored with or infatuated with. And it's why they will continue to go through a list of the wrong ones. They will continue to endure mistreatment and a disconnect in values and all types of other fundamental things because it's not actually uh, appropriated on a person. It's been applied to an idea, right? It's been applied to an idea. Uh, I desire to be in a relationship with who it doesn't matter. Uh, I just want to feel valued and I want to feel like I belong and I want to feel like what everyone else has. So I'm lonely and the way that I'm going to correct that is I'm just going to be with someone. No, we're not just going to be with someone. We want God to highlight the one. Right? And I'm not a part of the company that believes that there's only one person in the whole world that could possibly be for you. Right? I'm not a part of that. I do believe that there are people that are way more compatible and that based off of our prayerful discerning of God's purposes with a person, we can choose a better one than a bad one. Right? We, we, we absolutely can choose one that's going to make it easier to journey in the fulfillment of God's purposes and how he's going to develop us once we both say I do. Um, However, when you say I do, even if it wasn't necessarily the most right one, it's now the one. It's now the one, right? And and we, we are where we are. And that's not to say that God can't do incredible things. He absolutely can. Um, I just say that to say oftentimes we're not evaluating our relationship goals in God accurately. Um, You know, I counsel with young guys now, and I say that because I'm 41, and, you know, younger guys are now uh, late teens, early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s, early 30s, who are considering the idea of getting married. 
Um, and it's always funny to me, always super funny to me. Man, when people start dating, or, or I mean, whatever that means, right? When people start hanging out in a more serious way, a more exclusive way, like, oh, like, that's my boyfriend, that's my girlfriend. Okay, cool. Um, and it's like, well, let me ask you a question, bro. Like, could you see yourself marrying this girl? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, bro, like, I said we were hanging out. Like, pump the brakes. It's like, no, she's fun to be with, bro, and she's fine. And like, ah, da, 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 da. And it's like, bro, and like, man, all the likes I'm getting now because people see me with her. And da, da, da. it's like, what are you talking about, bro? It's like, okay, like, for real, though, could you see yourself marrying this girl? And 75% of the time, it's like, no. Like, bro, I said she was fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I said it was cool to hang out. Like, we enjoy spending time together in particular ways um, with boundaries, of course. Um, but with boundaries, like, we enjoy spending time together. It's like, bro, let me help you. If you cannot see yourself marrying this girl, then what you are telling me is that you are having fun spending time with someone else's wife. And I would encourage you that if you're lonely, to get your heart together and to get whole in God. Right? And this isn't, it's not some critical thing, right? For real. It's not some critical thing. We have to be satisfied with God alone. That, that no other person is ever going to be able to fill the gap or the vacuum or the hole on the inside of our life that God has only made for himself. And what happens is, is when we get into other relationships, we project that brokenness on other people, demanding of them to give us what only God can. And they'll never be enough. They'll never be fun enough. They'll never be fine enough. They'll never be fascinating enough. We'll never share enough. It, it, it will never be enough. And it's that way on purpose. Yeah. Right? Because marriage is not only something that's been made for me to be happy. It is the greatest refining tool that God has employed in the human experience to make me holy. Not just to make me happy. The idea of a spouse is just not to satisfy all of the things that I think I'm missing or lacking or that I want. Right? Anna knows my goal has not ever, or, and this isn't some weird thing, it's not ever been to like be the Hollywood husband that maybe she's always dreamed of having. That's never been the goal. Um, I want to be the man that God is going to use in her life to help fulfill his call and purposes that he has for her as a daughter. And I want to be the man that is going to cultivate her experience in God that is going to ready her on this side of life to spend forever with the man that she is going to marry in the age to come. My responsibility is to ready her for the age to come, to stand before God and to yield as priest and prophet and provider and protector as the shepherd of my home 
in order to cultivate God's purposes in her. Um, she's not just along for the ride because I've got some dynamic or superstar call. Right. Right? But I remember early on sitting and praying when Anna and I started interacting and saying like, Lord, I have done this the wrong way so many times and I don't want to do that again. And I'm not lonely, I'm alone. I, I actually am satisfied. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm okay being whole in you and continuing to journey, continuing to be developed, continuing to be readied for the idea that one day you're going to put me with somebody because I desired it. Um, and if you desire a spouse, you should not have to stop running in order to find the person that God has for you. You want to find the person that God has for you running hard after Jesus. You want to be running a hundred miles an hour after God with a burning heart, giving your life to the purposes of God. And you want to look to the left or to the right and to be like, oh, there you are. <laughs> you don't want to have to slow down. You don't want to have to stop. You don't want to have to pull off at the next exit. <laughs> to kind of camp out for a little while, to make accommodations, to create excuses. We're not missionary dating, right? Dating is not an evangelistic tool. Like, oh, I'm going to get her saved, though. Like, boy, woo, like, hey, like, she going to be right. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to get her saved. It's like, no, dating is not an evangelistic tool, Right? The mission field is not the female population, if you're a guy, right? or vice versa. You know what I mean? Super comical, right? But yo, when people's appetites get aroused, they come up with the craziest conversations I've ever heard. Like I've ever heard. It's like, bro, is she born again? Hey, but let me, but let me, let me tell you about her personality, though. Like, and, and, and let me tell you, bro, like we went to the beach the other day. Hey. Is she born again? It's like, she's going to get saved, bro. I promise. Like, I'm telling you. Like, I'm going to keep bringing her to church. Like, she's going to come. No, no, no. Bro. Like, we need priorities. We need values. We need fundamentals. We need non-negotiables. Right? You want to be running 100 miles an hour for God. 100 miles an hour for God. He that findeth a wife finds a good thing, which means we need to be running and we need to be open to looking. You know what I mean? Like whenever we feel that that season of life is appropriate. And I knew that I was there and I said, Lord, I, I don't want to do this the wrong way. And so I need your help because I've never had it modeled the right way. And I'm going to need real help in order to establish certain boundaries or parameters in order to interact with this girl in a healthy way. Because all I've ever known is the world. All I've ever known is brokenness. All I've ever known is like the sleazy car salesman, right? Like you gotta test drive it before you buy it. You know what I mean? Like all I've ever known is the wrong frame, right? Which Hollywood is great at, the world is great at, 
And all I've ever known is this brokenness brought on my life by the discipleship that the world offers. And I said, Lord, I need real help. And so I started to seek out counselors for my life because I didn't want to pretend like I knew it all. And not just counselors, uh, because it's one thing to make your life open to influence. It's another thing to actually be accountable to that influence. Right? At times, we'll let people say things, but then we won't also necessarily create the space for people to hold us accountable to the things that they've said or the influence that they've provided. And so I needed not just um, good points. I needed amazing people that were going to get in my business and stay in it (laughs) and hold me accountable in moments when I didn't want to be accountable. Right? My heart is on fire. I'm in love with Jesus, but my appetites are also raging, and I didn't always want to be accountable. Oh, we're not going to be honest. Oh, okay. Oh, I got y'all. Like, all right. Cool. Um, I, right? I. I didn't always want to be accountable. Um, it's just real life. And if we're not careful, our appetites that we don't have accountability with yeah. will get the best of us. Right? I remember one time uh, in a previous relationship. Uh, where, where, how real can we be? Right? I, I was joking on the way over. It was actually in the last couple of minutes. I was like, babe, I wonder if they're recording. Like, how, how willing are we going to be to go, like, all the way? You know? The, the Internet is always trying to ruin people's life. Right? They're always trying to ruin people's life. Little statements, little clips, right? Like, who cares? Um, I, I remember I had gotten into church, and I, I met Anna later on. Um, but one of the girls that I was dating when I had gotten into church, um, ah, it's going to be so rough. Uh, I, I just know, man, it's out there. It is what it is. Ay, ay, ay. Um, so the girl that I was with um, liked the old mic better than the mic that was developing in God and kept trying to uh, seduce me in a sexual relationship. And it got to the point where one time I remember sitting in my room and so frustrated with the Lord. I was like, and I say with the Lord, right? Because that's where it was at. Because when our appetites are raging and we feel held captive to certain things, we're really good at coming up with manipulative conversations, right? Like in Genesis 2, what did Adam say when God confronted them? This is your fault. I ain't asked for this. You gave her to me. And now look at the mess that we're in. You know what I'm saying? Like, everything was cool when it was just me. You know what I mean? Like, yo, it was just me. I was working this garden. I had it going on. You know what I mean? Which, which fellas, Genesis 2 tells us that before Adam had an Eve, he had a job. Hey. Eve's looking for the right thing, right? Not just anything. You know what I'm saying? Adam had a job. And he was faithful with a job (laughs) before God gave him an Eve. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, And I I remember sitting one time with the Lord, 
on the floor in my room and I was like, Lord, you know that I'm going to keep stumbling this way. And so what I need you to do is I need you to take away these sexual desires. Just take them away. You're God Almighty. You're sovereign. You are all powerful. Because what I realize is that every time this door gets knocked, I'm going to open it, Lord. And if you don't take these desires away, what I'm going to understand is that you know I'm weak and you don't want to do anything about it. So if you take it away, I'll no longer fall. I'll no longer stumble. And I remember the Lord speaking to me and saying two things. He said, you're not going to be able to build both relationships. You still need real discipleship and transformation. And I'm not going to take it away from you. That would be the easy thing to do. Right? That would be the easy thing to do. He's like, I want you, through discipleship and transformation, to bring real accountability in this appetite and area of your life. And because you say that I'm alive in you, being human is no longer an excuse for acting human. You say that I'm alive in you, and I am not susceptible to sin. I am not subject to any appetite, to any seduction, right? So if I'm alive in you, then it's time for you to allow the power that's at work in you to master this appetite so that you're no longer convincing yourself you'll always be subject to this appetite, right? And you have to sow into the truth to reap the reward of the truth, yeah. right? Some of us spend more time sowing into the lie. I'm always going to be this way. I'm always going to uh, stumble this way. Uh, I'm always going to be subject to this temptation. I'm always going to have these desires. Um, and let me just say, this is not only applicable to the single life, right? Like those of you who believe that once you get married, all of the appetite in this area of seduction is just going to go away, you are lying to yourself. Yeah. Or someone is lying to you, or you're just not wanting to live in the light of the truth, right? And, and if we're going to be real, it's difficult to make progress from an imaginary place. It, you can't make progress from a space that doesn't actually exist. And what I mean by that is we actually have to own the space that we're in. We have to be accountable to where we actually are. We have to be accountable to God, authentic, transparent, in order to own our space and journey. Because other times we're telling the Lord, this is who I am and this is where I'm living. And the Lord is like, that space ain't even real. Like, that's not even you. Like, you're really over here. And I desire for you to make progress, but you're living in pretense, right? You're living in some imaginative space, right? And so I was like, okay, Lord, well, then for that, I need real help. And so I incorporated people in my life, right, that would hold me accountable, that would help me as I was interacting with Anna, as we were going through what was uh, our 
uh, relational courting of sorts, where the intention was there that our relationship was pointed towards the idea that we could get married. And we were spending a season seeing if our values and compatibilities were going to align so that we could actually enter into covenant together. Right? I've got two girls. I promise you that there's not going to be a little guy who's going to show up to my house that just wants to have fun with my daughter because he thinks she's fine. It's not going to happen. Right? Um, I always joke with my girls, I'm like, dad's been to jail, and he's not afraid to go back. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo. And they're always like, dad, you're crazy. And I'm like, oh, you actually don't know how crazy dad can be. Like, oh, oh boy. But it's not just for my girls, right? I'm raising three sons, right? So my guys have to understand uh, a particular posture in their interaction with females and other fathers and mothers and the desire that they may have in a covenantal way. Um, And so we spent a season um, in what I guess the world would call dating, which was really the idea of biblical courting. Um, Right? You don't necessarily find dating in the scriptures. I'm not saying that it can't be done. Uh, What I'm saying is an intentionality in a season of interaction where the idea of the potential destination has been communicated. If from jump, we couldn't possibly imagine spending the rest of our lives together, we don't really need to be hanging out. You know what I mean? Like, and, and initially, it can be with exterior things. I'm not saying those things are wrong, right? If I got to say I do, I want to look at you for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that there can't be physical attraction. You know what I'm saying? Like, for real. Like, when I said I do, I understand that now my wife in Anna, this is the place where God has now commissioned me for all of my desires and appetites to be fulfilled. I'm not looking elsewhere. I don't have an appetite for anyone or anything else. I'm not having to side satisfy because my appetite for my wife has waned over time because of the introduction or the seduction to other things, right? And so there has to be at least some physical attraction, right? I'm not blind. (laughs) Like for real. So initially it can be exterior things. But that season has to be intentional. It has to be with the idea that our intentional interaction, meaning it's not just random, we're not just lonely, we're not just broken, we don't just have fun hanging out or want to be seen in a relationship or known as someone that has someone. Our interaction is intentional. And in that season of intentionality, we're trying to discern If our priorities and values and our compatibilities are leading us or developing our relationship towards a covenantal experience where we can say, yes, for the rest of my life, we're going to journey together in God. And I mean priorities and values to say our vision for life, right? I used to teach in in middle school and high school and with high schoolers, 
Uh, right? You, you always found these kids who were in love and going to spend the rest of their life together. Uh, amazing, right? Beautiful, cool. Um, at times, you'd talk to little Jimmy, and you know he was about to graduate, and he was going to join the military. And then you'd talk to little Susie, and she wanted to be a medic in a little African village on the mission field, you know, giving her life in some unreached people group. And I'm like, have you guys ever talked about what your vision for life is? It's like, well, no, you know, those things don't really matter. Oh, 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 but they do. They do matter. Vision for life, values. Um, and, and what I mean by values is not just communicated values. It's why you need time in an intentional season of interacting with each other. Um, and I promise I'm not going to talk the whole time, right? This is always the joke for us. Oh, she said she's taught me everything I know. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the reason that I say you need time is because time is a great revealer. And most times, we don't give enough time in order to really learn who someone is. We just trust the conversation that they know how to have. And in some cases, we end up marrying people off of potential rather than off of patterns. Those of us that are married, maybe you understand what I'm saying. I ask people now during premarital counseling, if said person never changed, would you still be thrilled to say I do to them and to give the rest of your life to them? And most times they're like, well, you know, what, what do you mean by never changed? You know, because there's like, man, there's like this area or this conversation or there's this thing. And I'm like, no, no, no. You're marrying the idea of who you think you can make them over time. If you're given enough space to influence them to become who you want them to be. No, no, no. You're not marrying potential. You're marrying patterns. You're marrying who the person has been. You're marrying who you know them to be. You're marrying the person that they actually are without any other influence or sort of coaching that you're going to try and secretly employ in their life to become the idea of the spouse that you've always wanted. You're not marrying potential, but they're going to be amazing. I get that, but you're saying I do to who they are today. And you're going to live dissatisfied if your efforts to change them in the time that you've determined you've already had to change them. Right? Like, oh, well, hey, listen, it's already been two years. Like, get with the program. Like, yo, it's already been a year. Like, these things should have already worked out. I had an idea that you would have already changed in this area, been different in this area, that you would have already become this person, because these are the real desires that I got married with. And so if we're not open and honest about the communication 
and the values and the patterns. It's like, oh, well, when we get married, you know, uh, he's really going to be able to keep a job. But he's had 22 jobs. I'm not saying that it's impossible. Right? Like, God can do all things. No thing is too hard for the Lord. But you're trying to convince yourself based off of potential rather than really prayerfully wrestling with the patterns. And I just find that at times, because we consider, at least in a worldly sense, that we can just give it a shot. Right? I do is till death do us part. Now, I get it, and I'm not necessarily trying to jump into the conversation of divorce and all of those things, even though I do understand that the scripture creates conversations, right, where divorce is something that can be an experience. I'm not championing that in premarital counseling, right? Like, oh, we'll just give it a shot. Bro, like, give it two years if it doesn't work out. Like, it's cool. You tried. You know, you did your best. No. Like, no. No. You know, uh, but because the values aren't necessarily communicated, right? And we're just trying to do whatever we can to secure the bag, right? Like, let, let, let me just do whatever I have to in order to secure the commitment forever, right? And then when we get married, then I'll really just kind of let it all out. Wrong game plan, right? Wrong game plan. Um, and so for that, we really had an intentional season of interacting and making sure that we were accountable and intentional. Uh, we hung out in groups, not, I mean, always, but initially, I think the first year, we hung out in groups. Um, then after that, once we got engaged, we allowed ourselves certain spaces to be together without others being around. Um, we were never together at each other's houses. Man, these things sound so simple. They sound so basic. You know, like we, we would ride together to go certain places. We'd go to the movies. We'd go to the mall. We'd go eat together. We'd hang out, whatever. We would never allow ourselves to be alone at each other's houses. Um, you know, it's not because she didn't trust me or I didn't trust her. Um, it's like I say now with certain boundaries that we have in place in our marriage. I don't trust the enemy. The enemy is who I don't trust. Right? It has nothing to do with I don't trust Anna or she doesn't trust me or that I don't trust other people. I don't trust the enemy. Right? And if Judas can walk with Jesus and the devil can get into his heart, then it just means that all things are possible and that we should employ greater Boundaries and accountability for the sake of preventative maintenance, yeah. right? It's better to set things up to succeed in advance yeah. than to be counseled on the backside of a miserable experience, yeah. right? It's easier. Yeah. And so we wanted the uh, path of greatest possibility for success, and we meant that. Um, and so that led to uh, a year of dating, nine months of being engaged, um, and then from that point, January 19th, 2007, it's been 16 and a half years. Um, so that's from my side, right? Anna's side is a little different in how we were uh, connected. I don't know if you want to share some of that journey. Yes. 
So my journey was very different. I feel like I came in like a wrecking ball into Mike's life because of my experience. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. I was the youngest baby girl of, I have three older brothers. Um, and just growing up, I, like, I had an amazing set of parents who were pastors, but yet I felt like did an excellent job at loving us, at loving God, and then serving their family, and then being on mission um, to what they were called. So I, was, I grew up in a very healthy home. Obviously, we, we're not perfect. We have issues, but it was very healthy. So I just remember like growing up, you know, just being a young girl, like you watch all these girls who are just so like in love with somebody every other week, but it just wasn't my story. I just was not interested in boys and getting involved in the whole who likes who. I just, I loved being with my parents and I loved being in church. Like that's literally how I grew up. And I feel like the fear of the Lord and the conviction of the spirit rested on me in such a tangible way that I didn't create or manipulate. I give all the credit to my parents and the way they prayed and the way they raised us. So as he's even talking about the culture that you set in your home is so important um, because your children are watching. Um, now that doesn't promise perfection. Again, like I have, you know, my brothers like have some are not even walking with the Lord right now. Everybody has to walk out their own path with Jesus, you know? But yet when you create a culture, there's something that's undeniable about what God can do. So just even going back to the culture that's created, and we'll probably dig more into kids and life and family and all that later on. Um, so I just wasn't interested. And so here I am, 14, about to be 15 years old. Again, I just loved being in church every time I was able to be. And being a pastor's kid, I was always in church. Um, so I remember the day Mike walked in, um, he was dating a girl that I grew up with, so I knew her well, um, knew she wasn't really following the path. We, we grew up together, but um, in comes Mike one day. I'm sitting um, the way our you know, sanctuary was, like the doors are back here, and I was sitting over here to the left with um, a, a lady at the time. She was married. She was about 30, like in her early 30s. I was just sitting with her. Church had begun. And the doors open, and at this time, the church was fairly large. It was about 700 people that were in attendance. And so in comes Mike, and I just remember, like, we're in worship, and so I'm looking this way, and I just, again, I'm 14. I have a 13-year-old at home. Like, I cannot imagine my daughter coming home and sharing this experience with me. I'd be like, mm, mm that was not the Lord. Like, you are confused. Like, don't get confused, you know, but it's just, it's, it's wild. Just... Again, the way we submit to the Lord and the leading of what he does, it's so beautiful to let him write, like, the history of what he's doing. Um, so anyways, the doors open, and we're in worship, and I, I look to my right, and in walks Mike. Now, you have to understand, he did not look anything like he looks right now. Easy. You look real good. Like, you look real good. Easy. But he was, at that time, like, what, 225? So I'm, like, 175 now. I was, like, 225. My hair was crazy long. Like just I had off five, the five earrings, two eyebrow rings, two tongue rings, slashes in my eyebrows. Like. Yeah. So not not even speaking to his appearance, but again, naive young girl sitting in church. In walks this guy. I'm a little like taken back because of what I hear. So as soon as the doors open and I see Mike, I audibly hear God's voice. It's undeniable. I knew what I heard. He said, "That is the man you're going to marry." I was so shaken and afraid, like, 
was like, this cannot be the Lord. Like, this cannot be the plans he has for my life. Like, being very real, like, you know, just again, naive, just, and, but I, I was so undeniable. Like, I knew what I heard. But again, I was so afraid by what I heard. And I just felt like in the moment, like, I need to tell somebody what I heard because I knew it was God. Like, it was undeniable. So I look at this woman that's sitting next to me, early 30s, and I'm like, I have to tell you something really crazy. I mean, she obviously knows I'm the pastor's kid, you know, all of that. And I said, I have to hear you what I just heard the Lord say. And so I begin to tell her, and she's like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and it was in that moment, I just, I made the decision, like, I'm not telling anybody else. Like, nobody else. I knew he was dating someone else, I, a friend of mine that I grew up with. And so I was like, again, not even knowing in the moment what I was doing, the Lord was beginning to set up our story and our history that we had together. So I didn't tell anybody else. And so for two years, I watched Mike go through this really radical transformation process. Like where those, that day where I heard the Lord speak and then the day that we began to like talk, I was like, it, he was radically different. He was not the same person. He didn't talk the same. He didn't look the same. It was like, this is night and day, literally new creature, new creation that I was watching. Um, but again, I didn't, by any means of myself, because again, I was afraid of it, um, but also like I wasn't trying to manipulate something. I knew whatever the Lord was doing, he had to do. Um, so I didn't share it with anybody. I didn't even tell my parents. I didn't, again, my mom, my parents were my best, my best friends. They are who I hung, up, hung, hung out with all the time, but I didn't share it with them. Um, I remember two years later, he was on a missions trip with my dad um, and the, some other people from the church in Puerto Rico. And again, like we had, he was being discipled by my dad, so he was coming around a lot more. Like I would see him all the time. Like it was constantly helping with different things. So it was like, more you begin to see him, you're seeing the transformation. I was like, okay, like, wait, there's something happening. Like there was something in my heart that was beginning to like break and also happen as well. Because again, like the plans of the Lord and his purposes and his will are, are better than what we could ever do. Um, so they were away and I felt like it was my opportune time to tell my mom, you know, that I was in love. And so I remember sitting down with my mom and I was like, I have to tell you something. And I hadn't told anybody else. And, you know, I just shared with her, like, I, I audibly heard the Lord. I know who I'm going to marry. And she's like, oh, my gosh. Like, she knew it was so out of character for me to do something like this. And she was like, okay, this is serious. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's serious. She's like, well, who is it? And so I told her. And then she's like, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> this is real. So immediately I think she called my dad, like, in Puerto Rico and told him. I'm surprised he didn't strangle Mike right there. But it's just interesting. Like, at, from that moment on, I began to I say I came in like a wrecking ball because I, I knew what I heard. And I knew what God said to me. But at the same time, I knew it wasn't his same story. And so I had to like almost see, like vet him, like where are you at in this? And I remember calling him and being like, all right, are you serious? Like, cause I knew like we started talking, we started liking each other. I'm like, are you serious about this? Like I need to know, am I wasting time? Like did God really say this or am I wasting time? Cause I'm just trying to move on. And so I remember him being like, uh. I was like, uh, yo, we've hung out twice. Uh. I remember I was so like, serious. I was like, are you serious? Are you going to marry me? Like, are like, we going to do this? Like, like <laughs> what, what, what am I missing here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like that escalated was, super fast. And it really did. 
It really did. But I just remember, like, from that moment forward, like, we just really submitted ourselves, again, like we were saying, like, to those who have, like, journeyed a lot further than us. Um, our time was spent with my parents, with other married couples, like, people who are a lot further. That's what our time really looked like. And seeing the investment that they made into us. Now, that doesn't mean that it was easy. Like, there was a lot that the enemy was after, like, to destroy what I knew God was forming together. Um, so it's actually been just really beautiful, but I was so young, I was so naive, but yet I can say like, when it comes to a promise from the Lord, cause I feel like I've heard more and more, like even from young women, even men as well, they've write, they write into us because they've seen a video that we've done on, you know, our story and how we've been married. And, you know, they're like, I, I feel like the Lord told me who I'm going to marry. Some of them are like, he's not walking with the Lord. Again, the same things. And I'm like, you have to really like ground yourself in who God is and what his word says in order to believe and actually like trust in the process. Because so many times I feel like we try to manipulate the process of the promise. Whenever God's asking you not to put your hands in it, not to, you know, and this, this has a lot to do with family, with marriage, like if you're single, like all of it. Like when God releases a promise over your life, it becomes so easy to try to get in there ourselves and work out the details. But if we would just submit to the Lord and allow him to work, like there's so much beauty and fruit that comes from allowing him to work and to do what he, obviously keeping ourselves pure before him to allow him to do that. Um, but that's really what a lot of like my side of the story look like. Um, well, I think it's important too, because I didn't know that she had this word from the Lord until our rehearsal dinner the day before we got married. When at our rehearsal dinner, the lady that she told was invited to the rehearsal dinner. And when she came in, she said, now I can tell everyone. She was like, what did I tell you years ago that no one else knew? Um, so what I'm, what, uh, what I'm saying is she didn't try to um, manipulate our interaction with, well, she had this word from the Lord. And if I didn't align with the word that she had, then I was going to somehow miss God, right? There has to be room for Jesus to be the shepherd, right? Like, like at times we try to play mediator, we try to play shepherd, we try to help God in, you know, maneuvering the process or massaging it a certain direction, um, I had no clue, right, even when, because she did call me that way one day after we had hung out a few times, and she was like, hey, yo, listen, like, are you serious? I was like, but it wasn't being motivated by, because I have this word from the Lord, and if you're not actually going to be about this word, then, you know, I'm just going to kind of check out or, you know, determine, like, maybe this wasn't God. Um, I never knew until the night of our rehearsal dinner. And so my motivations were being influenced by what I felt the Lord leading me to do. Yeah. And not by, because it, it goes so many ways, right? Like she's been in church her whole life. It could have been like, well, Lord, she really knows how to hear you. And so, you know, in my immaturity, I don't have as much time invested. You know, I've not prayed as much. Like my experience isn't the same as hers. I trust, you know, the way that she hears the voice of God. So I'm just going to believe the word, even if I don't necessarily feel shepherded that way. Right? There has to be room for Jesus to be the shepherd. There has to be room for Jesus to be the shepherd. Um, and I think it's because that's one of the things that we get often 
right, is it's so confrontational for people for whatever reason, and we get probably this angle more than anything else, is how did you wait years for God to actually fulfill the word that he spoke to you, like at 14, you were 19 when we got married, like five years waiting for God to fulfill this word, watching me date another girl in the church while she knows what the Lord has said to her. Right, like that's not, like, like there's, there's real drama here. <laughs> you know, like there's tension in the storyline. Um, but just believing that like, Lord, if you said this, uh, because the promise does one thing, uh, it gives her a posture for purity, right. right? Because if she believes that that's what the Lord has actually said, and yet runs around to date a dozen other guys, just over the time, because she doesn't want to be by herself or waste it, waiting for someone that may not necessarily ever come around, you know, um, I'm her only boyfriend her whole life which is amazing, right? I want my girls to have the same testimony. I want my boys to have the same testimony, right? Like I tell my guys, listen, like, well, my older son, at least, the other four and two. We're not talking about that yet. <laughs> um, but the introduction of the conversation with my 11-year-old right now, who has zero interest in girls, thank you, Jesus. Um, it's like, son, listen, we're waiting for one. Like I'm telling you, like just walk with dad, take heed to my counsel, we're waiting for one. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's going to be worth it. We're waiting for one, right? Like, you don't have to create the buffet experience. Like, we're waiting for one, right? I don't have that story, right? My story is radically different. Um, but Anna does, and so amazing. Um, but that is sort of like the lead-in to what would be the idea of what is our covenant together. Uh, and I say covenant because that's exactly what marriage is. And in order to understand marriage, we need a biblical framework, right? That was more so of just some of the fun details, right, of our story and journey. To understand marriage, we need a biblical framework. And we understand marriage because of who God is himself, right? It was God's original plan to spread his dominion through the farthest corners of the earth. Healthy family. That was God's plan. You go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to make man in our image. Let us make them in our image. Male and female, we will make them. Genesis chapter 2, we get a biblical framework of God's jealousy for marriage. Right? We understand it's the first institution, the covenant experience of a man and his wife. Adam gets put into a deep sleep. The rib comes out of Adam. God uses that part or piece, that rib, to form or fashion the one that would be the suitable helper for the man that God said it was not good for man to be alone. Right. So the first institution is this covenant experience. It's Adam and his bride. So we get a biblical framework of God's jealousy in the very beginning. God's original plan to share intimate authority and spread dominion to the furthest corners of the earth was through a healthy family. That was the plan. We're going to establish image bearers 
And as they multiply and cultivate a family experience in the knowledge of God and the ways of righteousness, and as they are responsible to me in order to spread my dominion, right? The domain of the king, the kingdom, right? The, the kingdom only makes sense when there's an actual king. And there is a king, he is sovereign, he reigns, he is unrivaled, there is none that compete or compare, he is subject to no one. No powers, no principalities, no rulers, no authorities in an unseen realm, spiritual hierarchy of corruption and wickedness. God is the supreme ruler of the universe and the timeline. And his plan to share his rule with creation and the universe was to employ that through healthy family. We have to get this framework or else we will never understand God's jealousy in the place of marriage. It's the father in Genesis 2 looking over the son and says it's not good for man to be alone. I'll ready for him a suitable helper a comparable companion, right? I like to say it's an immediate evaluation that gives us eternal implications. For the son of man shall not be alone. And here in the very beginning, we get the prototype in the primal experience of what will be the global or the universal sensation at the end of the age. We get the first Adam. I use that language because of Paul's language in Romans 5. The first Adam who is understood as a man in a moment, but is also a prototype. He is the original experience of the human creation. He is version one, right? I get updates to my phone all the time. You have to download the new software, right? It's the same idea. He's version one. Only now there's been an update that is supreme. There's an update that needs no others. The first Adam is compared or contrasted with the last Adam, who is the son of man. He is Jesus, the son of God, the bridegroom king. And in the initial experience, you find the first Adam with his bride, who is the comparable companion attempting to cultivate the creation or the earth for the father's domain. That was the responsibility. Cultivate a space for God to tabernacle in the earth the way that he desires. Well, the first Adam, with his bride by his side, failed. They are the initial or the primal prototype. We realize that the millennial reign of the Son of Man will be Jesus as the last Adam, the Son of Man, upon the earth with a radiant bride, cultivating the earth for the Father to descend and to tabernacle amongst men the way that he has always desired. When John sees in this vision in Revelation 21, the tabernacle or the throne of God coming down, it's what's been awaited for thousands of years. And it will be one of the responsibilities of the millennial reign. It will be the son of man victorious with his suitable helper, his comparable companion, the bride of Christ, cultivating the space in all of creation in order for the father's descending to rest upon the earth the way that he's always desired and where the first Adam failed the last Adam will not where the son or the man in the garden was conquered because of certain appetites the last Adam 
the Son of Man, will overcome. And his victorious bride, this radiant people, every tribe, nation, and tongue, will be a company or a kingdom, a royal priesthood that will stand alongside of him, discipling the nations in the knowledge of God and cultivating the earth for the tabernacling of the Father. This is epic. <laughs> like, I mean, extraordinary and overwhelming in every possible way to consider. But the responsibility of that first family was to cultivate a space in the earth that would represent the Father's tabernacling and his dominion. They were to be a people that had come under the transforming love of the Father and his influence. That would now be his dominion over them as a people and as a family. And we get this first glimpse of God's priority and purpose, his posture in the place of marriage. Right, So if we don't understand God's framework for marriage, then we enter into it with a lot of assumptions and a lot of inaccurate conclusions. Right, And because if we're not careful, we get discipled more by the world, by Hollywood, by the music industry, by all of the political arena and sports entertainment and people that we idolize and people that we enshrine in the place of our influence and we look more to so-and-so and what their marriage looks like rather than to actual godly people that have been transformed whose lives are rooted in the scriptures that have been conformed to the image of Jesus as a husband and a wife and that have actually anchored their lives together in God's purpose over long periods of time because we don't necessarily have an interest for that we get glamorized with all of the Disney and Hollywood idea of what marriage is going to be and we end up launching this massive agenda in the place of our marriage that if not accounted for ends up creating a lot of trouble and problems and issues over time and it's because we have an inaccurate idea of what marriage is actually all about, right? And we think that marriage is to satisfy all of the desires or the demands that I've kept bottled up or self-contained that I just couldn't wait to get with somebody that I could now share them, express them, project them on someone else that was now supposed to serve all of the appetites that I have. Wrong. That's not the biblical framework or the idea of what marriage is all about. Hebrews 9 gives us an important passage in the consideration of a covenant experience. It says that no covenant can be enacted while the person that's making the covenant is still alive. It says for covenant requires a death. And only once dead can the covenant actually be expressed or experienced the right way. Um, in simple terms, most of the issues in our marriage is because there is still too much I that's alive. I don't like the way that sounds just like anybody else doesn't. 
But when my focus is on serving myself, the potential for the storm in my house is unlimited. When I am trying to have everything orbit around my desires, my demands, my ideas of what a wife should be, the way that she should serve me, I'm not talking about being a dictator, right? I'm saying even in what I would suggest to be healthy paradigms or ideals of what a marriage experience is supposed to be. When my focus is on myself and not, as I suggested earlier, being uh, priest and prophet and protector and provider. Uh, and I would even suggest in that order. Um, in that order, being priest. As the man, I'm the priest of my home. I'm the high priest of my house, right, of my house. I get it. Jesus is the eternal high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us. I'm not assuming that I am eclipsing or usurping his authority. Uh, but in my house, I am the priest of my home. I am the shepherd of God's purposes in my house, in the sphere of people that I'm responsible for. That being my wife in a foundational way because it's out of our marriage experience that we are creating a culture that is discipling our kids. Our marriage doesn't start with our kids. It starts with us. Yeah. Right? Our marriage is about us. Right? Because there's going to be a day when they're grown and they're gone. And we're not going to be a part of that statistical crowd that looks at each other after 20, 30 years of raising kids and doing all of the things in the ideas of prioritizing our kids and sometimes idolizing our kids to the forsaking of our own intimacy. We're not going to be a part of the crowd that looks at each other 25, 30 years later and realizes that we have nothing left. That we prioritize the kids to the point where they came before us and there was never actually an us that we were intentional to cultivate along the way to the point where we were not only reminded that it was important, but that we lived it out in a practical way to continue to cultivate an intimate and vibrant relational experience between one another. Right? So our marriage starts with us. And then the idea of what we have together is what we then create to cultivate and culture the discipleship that we bring down to our kids. But in that, I have to have the framework. I'm the shepherd of my house. I am the shepherd of my house. Now, guys, listen. I am the chief intercessor in my house on behalf of God's purposes for my family. It's not my wife. And I've not forfeited that responsibility because my primary concern is just providing for them the material lifestyle that we all desire. Right? We hand out badges of honor to dads who simply attend meetings. Because attendance is what matters most. And we've forfeited the responsibility of being the priest in our homes and being the shepherd of our families and actually discipling our wives and our children. We forfeited that because we've bought into the lie, especially in Western culture, that says I'm too busy for that because I'm working to provide a way of life that we've all determined is what's ultimate. 
And when our way of life is ultimate, you'll sacrifice other things that aren't necessarily beneficial to what you've decided is the main thing. And so dad has to have this job, even though it takes him out of the house. It keeps him away from his family because the income is what we've determined is the most important element or ingredient for our life together. Super quiet. Amen. But we've bought into the lie. And so we celebrate dads who make room in their schedule to show up to a meeting every once in a while. And we forfeit the responsibility of discipleship, evangelism and discipleship in our homes, primarily with our families. Because we've bought into the American dream thinking that the American dream is synonymous with God's dream. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't work and be faithful and be responsible. What I am saying is that our career pursuits are never more ultimate in the place of our interest than our discipleship efforts in our own home. At the end of the age, you are not just going to bring the Lord what it is that you've done over the course of your life. Right? We so easily identify by what we do, by our career goals, Right? It's amazing to me right, that the idea we are covenanted to our spouse and our family is a once and forever experience. Yet we spend more time defining our value and our successes by what we do, by how much money we make, by our career opportunities, by our organizational relationships, by all of our American status in a variety of material ways, when those things are mere assignments. They come, they go, they can shift, change, transform in a moment. And any one of us who does not believe that, God is powerful enough to redefine the terms of our life overnight. But we spend more time persuading people that our value is found in things that relate more to what we do and how much we make than in the actual content or the quality of the discipleship of our families. When it's exactly the place that Paul started in the consideration for influence in the church. Man, you're thinking about giving someone influence in the church? Cool. Well, if a man can't manage his own house, why would you give him influence in God's house? 1 Timothy 3.5. Like, why would you do that? Why would you pay someone to do in public what they can't successfully do in private? Why would you pay somebody to do with strangers what they can't do with their own family? Oh, guys. So the idea of the condition or the quality of our families, it's on me before the Lord. There's an intercessor in the heavens, and he's not a woman. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is the eternal high priest. He is the great and eternal intercessor ever living to make intercession for us. And before the Lord, God holds me accountable as a man, as a husband, and as a father for the condition of my family. Now I get it. If you don't like the way that sounds, I don't care in some ways. I mean, for real. Like, 
again, like we, we got to actually align our lives to the word. We have to align our lives to the truth. And we've counseled with so many people whose marriages are broken in certain ways, but oftentimes it's because of a wife who with tears longs for her husband to actually start leading in their home in a spiritual way and to take the reins as the shepherd of the house, even if it's imperfect, even if it's weak, even if it's broken, even if it's not the most decorated, even if it's not the greatest performance, a, a wife longing to actually submit to a man that will take spiritual authority in the home as something that God is going to hold him accountable to, right? But we're quick to quote Ephesians 5, wives submit. Maybe they would if you would submit to God in a greater way. Maybe if they could see you surrendering to the Lord, they would surrender to your leadership. I have authority in my house, not because I wield it like I'm the man, not because I'm Nero or I'm the emperor of my home, but it's because I'm the priest of my house and the priest made sacrifices on behalf of the people that they felt responsible for. That was the charge of the priest to consider the situation or the condition of the people and to constantly before the Lord make sacrifices on behalf of the people they were responsible for. This is my charge before God. I am the priest of my home. And then I'm the prophet in my house. I am the steward of God's voice and purposes. I am the protector in my house. I am the one that's responsible to create the safeguard as I serve my family. To create an environment of safety and love. To cultivate God's purposes through a posture of surrender in my house. And then I'm the provider. But you notice the provider came last. The provider came last. But many times we take the provider, especially as a man, and we put it first. And we'd rather be the provider than be the priest. And what we're telling our wife and our kids is that there are other things more ultimate than God's purposes in our house. That's what we're saying. Is that, well, yeah, I, I get it, like, dad really cared about the Lord, and he really cared about church, and he cared about God's purposes, and he cared about us too, so long as it didn't infringe on what was the organizational goals, the financial goals, the corporate ambitions, whatever the idea of provision was, right? And I get it, it's confrontational to consider looking at a man and saying to him, if your current role or position or job or experience is keeping you away from your family, then maybe you need to consider doing something else. Because at the end of the day, you're not just going to bring the Lord what it is that you've done. We understand in Matthew 7, there's going to be many that have done all types of incredible things. And he'll say, but I never knew you. At the end of the day, it's not just what you've done but you're going to bring him what you've become. At the end of Colossians 1, Paul's jealousy was to work with power that was working in him amongst the churches and his call to the Gentiles. 
to produce a people that were mature in Christ. We consider everything before the transformation of our family. We consider everything before our own transformation and being conformed to the image of Jesus and then out of our surrender to God as the priest or the shepherd of my house through that yieldedness actually discipling my family and seeing my family conform to his image. We quickly talk about our successes in other areas of life. When the greatest accountability before God is going to hinge on our successes or lack of successes in the area which was our greatest responsibility, which was our marriage and our family. I'm telling you, at the end of my life, I am convinced of this. The Lord is going to talk more with me about my relationship with Anna and my relationship with my kids than any altar call I made, any crusade field I stood on, any stadium event I was a part of, any fancy media initiative thing, TV interview, radio, this. At the end of my life, the intimate interest of the Lord is going to be that I was most responsible for. And if we don't have the proper framework for the idea of marriage, then we get into marriage with all of these other agendas. And our marriage gets hijacked by other interests. It gets hijacked by all of the seduction of the world and the material world and the system of the age. And we end up initiating compromise in areas or in interests that God considers to be ultimate for an appetite for things that are immediate. Right? It was Esau who forfeited what was ultimate for an appetite that was immediate. He couldn't control an appetite in an immediate way. And so he gave up something that God considered ultimate in his life in order to satisfy an appetite that was only immediate in his life. All of the world is going to fade. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And God is launching and repopulating cities, regions, and nations with healthy families. With healthy families. Because it is through the avenue or the vehicle of healthy families that he is extending his kingdom influence or his dominion in what right now is the creation experience. We are cultivating a place for God in the earth when we are entering into the idea, whether this is just me personally, whether I have no one but myself and I'm accountable to the Lord and I'm actually journeying with God and God is transforming me and I'm growing in God and I'm being developed, whether it's just me or whether I now have the responsibility as a husband and a wife or a wife and a husband, whether I have no kids, whether I got a lot of kids, we got a lot of kids, right? We got a lot of kids. So whether you have no kids, whether you have a lot of kids, we are cultivating the place of God's dominion here in the earth as we are coming under his transforming love and consistently yielding to his influence. This is what we would call discipleship. And this is God's goal. It is the goal. 
It's the reason we get the prototype picture in the garden of the first Adam as the man with his bride by his side. The father has readied her, fashioned this helper, this companion. It's always overwhelming to me to officiate weddings and attend weddings. Whenever, whatever the introductory things may be, uh, I get it, there are a variety of things, but there always comes that moment where the music begins to play and whoever's officiating says, all rise, let's all stand together for the presentation of the bride. And the doors kick open if you have doors, right? I, I get it. But the doors swing wide and the father stands with the bride looking down the aisle at the bridegroom. And they journey the aisle. And whoever's officiating says, who gives this woman to this man? And the father joyfully, oh, Lord, please help me. <laughs> oh, joyfully, Lord, joyfully. The father joyfully, I'm thinking of my girls. The father joyfully says, I do and hands the bride over to the bridegroom. Man, we get this epic picture in the beginning of God's jealousy. And I get it, it's prototype and it's imperfect, which is why it's a glimpse. But we get a glimpse in the beginning of God's plan to cultivate the earth for his tabernacling forever. And I get it, they failed, they, they got exiled, I get that. But God's plan is consistent and the last Adam, the son of man, with his victorious bride, no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish, who has overcome, right? Yes, uh, I get it. The angel tells John, don't weep, behold, Jesus has overcome. But we learn in Revelation 12 that the bride will overcome him, the wicked one, the enemy, by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the lamb not loving their own lives, even when confronted with death. And so the son of man who overcomes will stand with the radiant bride who has overcome the world and the wicked one by the grace of God and the power of the spirit, making ready this helper, this companion, the one that will enter into the age to come and throughout the millennial reign will assist in cultivating the earth for the great descent that John sees in Revelation 21. He said, and I heard a voice before the great throne of God as it began to descend. And I saw the throne of God coming down to tabernacle upon the earth. John sees the vision of what is the fulfillment of what God desired in the very beginning. And we have to have this vision for marriage in our own lives. A vision where we understand that God has a priority to transform us and to bring us under his influence. And where now we are going to seek discipleship in our personal lives and in the place of marriage through God's transforming love and his desire for how we set our life up, right? We want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. That's Psalm 45, 7 company, right? We want to bring discipleship to our lives, which means our primary interest and sources are going to be the influence of the Spirit and the Scriptures. The Word has to be the plumb line. 
It has to be the standard. Our marriage has to be conformed to biblical values, which means it's not conformed to worldly values. Right? It's not conformed to worldly values. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, well, in certain ways, I always love talking to guys just because I, I don't assume that it's only guys. Um, I imagine it could be females too. Uh, but because I'm a guy, I better identify with the issues and the appetites of guys. Right? I don't identify with the issues of females. I'm not one. Right? So just as a guy, it's always interesting talking to men. When I say our lives are to be conformed to biblical values. Well, let's, let's use the idea of sexual intimacy. You're like, oh, snap. Right? One of the questions I love to ask in premarital counseling is, uh, what is your ideal idea of how many times a week you are going to be engaged sexually with your spouse, right? Inevitably, the answer for guys is always somewhat different than the answer for females. I'm not saying it's always that way, right? I can always tell when there is an intimacy issue, when the conversation turns into how many times a month rather than how many times a week. Like, it'd be a lot easier to interact if like, there was some sort of interaction. Um, but in the idea of sexual intimacy, talking with guys, um, I always suggest conforming our appetites to the word. Which means that in the place of sexual interaction, my own desires are not what is supreme in the place of my interests. Sexual interaction with my wife is not just about me, right? If the only time I lay hands on my wife is when I'm trying to get some, there's a problem, right? If I'm not laying hands on my wife to pray for my wife, to contend for God's purposes, to believe together in the dream of God, to continue to steward his voice in our life and in her life as we're journeying together. If the only time that I find place or priority to lay hands on my wife is in a sexual way, there's a problem. Yeah. I'm the priest of my house. I'm the shepherd of my home. But even then, in the idea, my idea of a successful, intimate life with my wife is not coming from some Hollywood imagination. is not coming from some um, preliminary or previous experience with being given over to porn. My idea of an intimate or vibrant, sexually active life with my wife is not being shaped by porn. It's not being shaped by Hollywood. And it's not being shaped out of comparison. Man, I'm telling you, you would do well to pray for grace to destroy comparison in your marriage, especially in the place of sexuality or intimacy with one another. We're not comparing our spouse to some movie that we watched. 
We're not comparing our spouse to some video, right, that we give ourselves to, where we are secretly awakening unhealthy appetites or desires that we're now, in a predatory way, taking out on our spouse, rather than in an intimate way, seeking for greater union in God through a sexual exchange. When it's just about some worldly, uh, when it's just about some me satisfied, when it's just about how can I get what I want as often as I want in the way that I may want. And now I use the term predatory because what comparison does when we have unhealthy inspiration is it launches an agenda on the inside that's not holistic, meaning it didn't come from God. It didn't come from a healthy intimate way to greater develop us in union with God and each other. It came from the world. It came from something unhealthy. It came from brokenness. It came from self-satisfaction. It came from self-seeking and using another person in order to incorporate someone else into something that I wanted separate from union with God and another person. God is the one that said sex was good and was to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship. I'm discipling my kids to know that sex is amazing when it's shared, or at least it's supposed to be, when it's, when it's shared in the right context. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, my Lord. We've got an afternoon break coming up. <laughs> Anyways, all right, so. But we need to develop a healthy appetite for our spouse. And one of the ways that we do this is we eliminate or we destroy comparison in all of the variety of ways that comparison is trying to influence our appetite. Yeah. I remember years ago, I was a CrossFit, or I was, oh, let me say it this way, I was, yes, okay, so I was a CrossFit competitor in some way. Um, and because of that, uh, I started following all of the CrossFit athletes and all of the different gyms and all of the different events and things that were happening around the world. Um, if you're familiar with CrossFit, then, I mean, I guess the regular gym is like that too. Uh, it's like the meat section in the grocery store, right? Like everything is wrapped in like plastic wrap or like spandex, right? Um, and in CrossFit, it's like bathing suit workouts, right? Uh, but I remember one day scrolling through social media and having the Holy Spirit speak to my heart. And the Lord said something to me that I was unaware of. But just because I was unaware of it didn't mean that it wasn't valid. Sometimes you don't know until you know. But when you know, now you know. Right? Sometimes it's like, I didn't see it until I saw it. But now I see it. And now I can't unsee it because I saw it. <laughs> sometimes in a great way, sometimes in a, in a not so great way. But I remember scrolling through social media and having the Lord speak to my heart and saying, I want you to unfollow all of the events and all of the female athletes and all of 
you know, the gyms and whatnot, like follow the male competitors. And even then it was with certain boundaries. And I was just like, I don't understand. And he said, this is not your intention, but nevertheless, the consequence of the exposure to this influence is affecting your appetite that you have for your spouse. And I remember we were in a season of being pregnant often and little kids. And I mean, those of you that are married and have had kids, you understand like, man, when your wife gets pregnant, it changes the dynamic of her body structure. She's building a human. <laughs> like she's growing a human. Like it, it is what it is. Um, but I remember one time scrolling through and the Lord was like, you don't understand that the way that you continually see this, it's affecting an appetite that you have on the inside that belongs to your wife. And over time, you're going to begin to compare her to the images that you see, to the events that you watch, to what is your exposure to other women this way, right? And so for me, I didn't realize, and I was devastated, right? Like, not because I felt like the Lord was correcting me because I had done something wrong. It was preventative. It was if you continue down this path, I'm telling you where this leads, and so for your own health in your marriage, I am suggesting that you cut this out, that you prune this away, right? It wasn't because it was categorically wrong. It was because what was wrong is what was happening in me over time that I wasn't aware of. But God intervened because God has the desire for the success and the strength and the health of our marriages if we will yield ourselves to his voice and his influence in a continual way. Where he has the primary place of influence in our home to say whatever he wants to say. Well, this is especially in the place of my appetite for my spouse and the way that that gets worked out in a sexual interactive way, right? My spouse is not just now subjected to all of my sexual desires that I had bound up within me while I was single that I just couldn't wait to get somebody to, to do this to and have this type of, it. no, 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 like slow down, right? Like we have to start with the Lord. And we have to start with what's healthy. And we have to start with the idea that the scripture gives us for the purpose of sexual interaction, right? I was at a men's event recently and said to a group of men, marriage is not now your license to just be a pervert. It's not. And I think because we receive our influence from the world, we find confrontation. Because we receive our discipleship from videos and movies, we get conditioned in unhealthy ways. Because we live in a self-satisfying me, me, I, I culture that reduces everything down to what I want when I want it, especially in an on-demand or Insta generation that we can easily lose traction with God's desires, especially in the place of intimacy in our marriage, right? It's not about me. 
It, it is in certain ways. I get it. I have to be involved. But, but it's, it's not simply or only about me without the consideration of union with my wife and it being a tool that God is using to deepen our union in an intimate way, even with him and us as a couple. All right, I'll switch subjects. I can tell we're... No, I just want to interject. I know we're running out of time. Um, But I just want to... Because I think it's easy to, as women, to listen to all of this and be like, amen, amen, yes, yes, yes. But on the flip side, like, it doesn't give us a license or a pass just to be passive. You know, I think, like, hearing, you know, the way he takes the ownership of being, you know, the priest of our home, being the one who will be prophetic, who will, you know, posture himself to then provide. Like, it's easy, I think, at times, like, to just amen that because of the authority that they stand in to be passive because I've, I took that place. I, I watched um, that be acceptable for so long. But yet, for women, it's so important that we know who we are and we know our role in the home. Um, for so many, like, beginning years of our marriage, I was, again, I was 19 years old. I had no clue who I was, like, no clue. And so a lot of the frustrations in our marriage was fueled by my insecurity. And my insecurity was not allowing me to healthy, in a healthy way submit to my husband, to allow the beauty of what I feel like is being cultivated now to pass on to generations now what it is. So I just want to charge even like the women, the wives, the mothers in the room, like there's so much beauty in the word submission. I think for so long it's been tainted and it's been taken wrong because like Mike said, like there's been so much misuse of submission to women, but yet there is so much beauty in submission. It's what the word instructs us to do. Um, Because it even says like, if you would submit to God, the enemy will flee. But that also pertains to our husbands and their roles in the house and also, you know, Every, I, I amen everything that he said, but I think at times it's easy just to watch them like, okay, you have to lay those desires down. Well, no, like the Lord's given him very real desires. There's actually very real things that we both desire and that we need from one another. Mike and I so often will sit down. He's much better at this than I am. <laughs> but he'll sit me down and we'll have a discussion after he interrogates me for a while. But he will, like, ask me, like, what, not in an unhealthy way, not that anything's wrong, not that we're even fighting or things are bad, but there's tension that can come in the home that they, like, I don't know about y'all, but this week has been, like, really hard for us, but this is why. Like, there's so much beauty here. And so I just even want to say, like, to those of you who may have been experiencing weird just swirls and, like, warfare this week, like, just know, like, God's in this. Like, he's breathing life and giving instruction that's going to allow us to align with what he's doing. Um, but he'll sit me down and be like, okay, what do you need from me? Like, what are things that you may need from me? What are things that I have not been doing? Like, what do you desire? Like, and we'll have it, and it's hard for me to just sit there and be like, okay, I need this, 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 this. But like, we sit down and we have those conversations because the desires are still real and they're still necessary, but they have to be fueled and come from a healthy place together. So wives, like we get to submit. Like submission allows room for enjoyment. Now, if you're a slave to something, that's not enjoyable. 
Like if you're a slave to your spouse, if you're a slave to your children, if you're a slave to your home, if you're a slave to your job, that's not enjoyable. But when we actually submit to the Lord and we allow him to frame like who we are, our values and our identity, Submission, like we both get to enjoy in a beautiful way each other and like what God has destined and desired. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Like I know it's like easy just to listen to all these things, but yet we have a real requirement. Like there's, there's a real beauty that we allow and there's value that we add to our husbands where they don't have to look for it anywhere. They don't have to look, you know, at pornography. They don't have to watch videos. They don't have to look at other women when they're outside the house. Like we can, in confidence of knowing who we are, submitted to who they are, speaking into the life of who God has given them as the authority of our home, we actually get to enjoy in a beautiful submissive way. As they submit to God, we get to submit to them and it's just beautiful. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, we sit down often, I mean, not weekly, but we sit down often, and I ask the question, um, what do you need from me? Because the fruit of the spirit mind reading, I don't have. I really wish you did. It would be so much easier. <laughs> right? I, 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 I don't have that, and so at times, I can think that I'm killing it. Right? Like, when in reality, because I've never actually asked, I'm getting killed by it. Right? Like, and so I ask, like, what do you need from me? Um, at times, it's, man, like, like, this has been amazing. That's been amazing. Um, man, I need more of this. Uh, if we could do this, uh, this type of time together, uh, this, this. And it's just the constant ebbs and flows of being in relationship and wanting to actually serve God's purposes and be successful in what we're trying to do together. Uh, marriage is real work, but it's worth working, right? It's real work and it requires real work, but it's worth working. Um, and so we do, we sit down and talk from time to time. Um, what do you need? How can I do better in this? Uh, what about this? How's this going? Um, even at times, the sexual conversation for us. We have conversations here. How is this going? <laughs> In every area of life together. Um, in every area of life together. Um, just a few more comments on comparison, and then we'll close our morning session together, and I'll just kind of pray for everybody. Um, comparison is dangerous because it creates the idea in your spouse that they are not enough. Yeah. Th this is actually deadly when it gets rooted in the mental framework or in the emotional framework of your spouse. Right? It's one of the reasons that porn is so devastating to a spouse. Because it's the idea, I'm not enough for you. No. You had to look elsewhere for satisfaction, for excitement, for the arousal of a particular appetite, what have you. But the idea is created through comparison. Right Now, what is healthy is discipleship. And looking at other couples or families that are modeling something 
that we seek as an influence in our own lives to where over time we can relationally be influenced by how someone else is living. That is absolutely healthy. It's all Bible. Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. We want other couples that we can follow. Um, what I will never do is say to my wife, I wish you talked to me like so-and-so talks to their husband. Right? Here's where I'm saying the dangers of comparison. Right? And I'm not talking about just in like um, ambiguous or like abstract kind of ways, which would be uh, Hollywood type stuff or whatever, videos or whatever. Now I'm talking real life examples. Right? Where now the comparison hits super hard because it's close in proximity. And now there's relational connections that are now going to create a lot of confusion um, right? Because we have an appetite that belongs to our spouse, right? That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says, right? Paul says that the woman or the wife, her body is not her own, and the same way in the male or in the man that the husband is supposed to fulfill his duty, right? Well, it's not just out of duty, right? It's not obligatory, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I get that. Although we are obligated to enjoy certain interactions in the context of marriage, it's not just obligation, right. right? It's not duty alone. It should be delight. And one of the ways that we can consistently, um, you know, like Peter says, to keep the marriage bed undefiled, to keep it pure. One of the ways that you can keep it undefiled is to eliminate comparison. where you are dreaming of your spouse. Now, one of the things that I encourage people is that it's easy in the space of courting or being engaged, right, to be the right thing, right? It's easy in the days when we're dating and like we're trying to figure out if we're gonna get married, right? Everybody wants to be pursuable. Does that make sense? Like we wanna be pursuable. Well, that's easier in the idea of dating, courting, um, you know, engagement, oftentimes we buy into the lie that assumes that now because we've said I do, that we no longer need to be pursuable. That we no longer need to be the right thing that our spouse desires. Well, you're stuck with me now. Like we said I do. Hey, I mean, I, I, I gained, you know, 100 pounds after we got married and it just kind of is what it is. If things are the way that they are. You got to put up with it. Like we're covenanted forever. Now I'm exaggerating certain points to make it comical, right? But the idea is that I want my spouse to desire me. I want that. I should want that. I want all of Anna's dreams and desires to be fulfilled in the place of delight in our marriage that we experience together. Well, this means that I have to have her in mind when I consider myself, right. right? And that one of the ways that I can serve my wife and her desires is to consider myself and to continue to be pursuable. And I'm not talking, you ain't got to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger and all this crazy stuff. That's, that's not at all what I'm talking. These are extremes. But what I'm saying is there must be a consideration of the pursuit Right? We, at, most times we think about ourselves and how our wives or our spouse isn't giving us something that we desire. Right? Like, 
well, you're not this and you're not that. And if you looked more like this and if you did this, and it's with yourself in mind. But often we don't consider, are we the thing that they desire? Right? I, I remember talking to someone who was in our church years ago. And uh, he was single. He was in his late 30s. He really wanted to get married. And um, I'll just say it this way. Uh, his makeup or how he was put together, right? His, his frame, his build, who he was. People kept trying to introduce him and set him up with and send him out on dates. Girls that were equal in the setup or the framework or how he was built. And he was at our house having dinner one night and we were having dinner. <laughs> and he said, man, I just don't understand. Like, I don't get why everybody keeps trying to set me up with girls that look like me. And I was like, bro, like, what are you talking about? Right now, this is going to be super funny. I'm only saying it for the purpose of conversation. He was super short. He was like 5'3", like 300 something pounds. Like, he was a joy, though, in the place of personality, right? Like, um, but he was like, I don't get why, like, everybody tries to set people up with people like me. And I just started laughing. And he's like, man, they think because I'm this way that, like, this is what I have an appetite for? And I was like, bro, have you ever thought that maybe there's a girl out there looking for the right thing the same way that you are looking for the right thing? Right? Like, we, we have to keep the idea alive of the pursuit in the place of our marriage. Right? That I have an appetite that should be aroused for my wife, right? When I close my eyes and when I consider my desires or what I consider to be um, my dreams, it, my infatuation, if I'm not seeing my spouse, there's an issue in my appetite. She should be the one that I'm desiring. She should be the one that when I think of being satisfied, she's the one that registers here on the inside. If any other person, <laughs> right, then we have to consider the influence. We have to consider the outlets and the exposures that we have in our life and where these other influences are getting traction in our appetites. Now, I know I'm only using one issue, which is comparison. We'll consider other things this evening. Um, but, but this is a big deal. And most people are dissatisfied because they never deal with the issue of comparison. It is possible to be thriving in the place of satisfaction with your spouse. It is possible for God to give enormous amounts of grace to fulfill success and strength over long periods of time with your spouse in the place of marriage, where we don't have to think about another, look to another, or employ other outlets in order to fill in the gaps where we lack satisfaction or where we experience dissatisfaction because of our comparisons and how that's now creating competition in my appetites. It is possible 
to be wholly satisfied in God with my spouse for years and years and years and years and to thrive, not just to fake it till you make it, but in a vibrant on fire way to be in love, in love, real time, not just I love you, but to be in love and to be in pursuit and to be completely overwhelmed in a dreamy way by the idea of my spouse. It is possible. And that's what we want. All right, everybody okay? All right, I'm going to pray for us. Um, again, we're going to consider some other things tonight. Um, I hope you come. Uh, <laughs> Oh, Jesus, we love you. Um, Lord, we love who you are, not just our idea of you. Um, And Lord, we pray that as these precious ones, Lord, these saints have gathered this morning, what a joy it is to gather with the saints, with the people of God, with this called out company, these transformed ones. Lord, what a privilege um, for us together as exiles. We're misfits. Um, This world is not our primary place of belonging. And so its ways and its culture is not what we're seeking to be influenced or discipled by. Um, Come out and be holy. For I, the Lord, am holy. And like Paul said, we have been betrothed to a husband, to this bridegroom, to the man Jesus. And we want purity in our intentions and in our agenda. And so, Lord, whether we're in a period of waiting right now, where we're looking to you, where we're praying and fasting and contending for your purposes in our lives as a spouse, and to have a spouse, um, we're not just looking for one, we are going to be one. Um, also, and both are important. And so we want to be the right thing whenever you bring the right person along. Our Lord, whether we've been married for a short time or a long time, um, Lord, just because nothing is wrong and we're great at eliminating issues doesn't mean that everything is right according to what you desire. And we want the fullness of what our life together and marriage could be. We don't want to settle for average or par. Um, Lord, we want fullness. When you think about our life together and the dream that you have for us, Lord, we want it all. Lord, we pray that we would tear off the lid and the limitations of everything that we've just conditioned ourselves to settle for and that we would begin to dream again, that our hearts would come alive in the idea of what we together can be in God. Thank you, Lord, for your dream for marriage and your plan to use healthy families to cultivate the earth for your dominion and your tabernacling. Lord, oh, what a privilege it is to be considered in this conversation, Lord. Um, And we take it serious. And so that's what this event is all about, Lord. We take it serious. And so in whatever way you speak to your people over the course of the day, Holy Spirit, um, I pray Plant your purposes in people's hearts and cultivate your dreams and your desires for our lives and our marriages. Um, We want to hear you.
over the course of the day. This is what we want. We've come to hear God. Use whatever vehicle you can, but we've come ultimately to hear you, Lord, so that our lives can be yielded and conformed. Challenge us in the ways we need. Encourage us in every way we need. But ultimately, Lord, have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name.